All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, we are starting the second half of our Survival Guide series where we're looking at uh, how is it that we follow Jesus in an environment, a city where it's just unnatural and very difficult to follow Jesus. And uh, tonight, what you're going to notice in this letter is a shift in tone uh, where the, the author of this letter, it's a guy named Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, um, shifts from telling you uh, so much ex- about what God has done in your life to what God uh, wants you to do in response, okay? So he's shifting from what God has done to what you are supposed to do in response. And what he's going to say is that your life, really the last half of this book, is all about how your life, when you go and do life tomorrow morning, when you go home tonight, um, all of your life is meant to be a response to the grace, truth, and love uh, that God has shown you and that Paul spent the first three chapters of this book telling you all about. Now, this starts to make sense when you understand that all of life, uh, all of our lives are response to something. All of our lives uh, are lived in response to something. And um, I was thinking about the, that this week. Um, I, I saw this really manifested in the life of my grandfather. My dad's dad, he recently passed away. And um, I, I remember growing up, uh, we would only see him every once in a while. He lived about four hours away in South uh, West Virginia. Not West Virginia, but South West Virginia. And um, we would go see him. And uh, I remember when I was in middle school and my brother Eric uh, was in elementary school, uh, Eric was going through my grandfather's garage and actually came across these uh, rabbit traps. Rabbit traps. Uh, not rabbit traps. Rabbit traps. Traps to get rabbits. And um, my brother sees these things and uh, you know, asks my grandfather, like, can we put these out? And uh, my grandfather's like, yeah, of course, we, uh, you know, we can put these out. And um, so Eric puts these out. But you have to understand that for Eric, when he was thinking about catching rabbits, he was thinking about catching a pet. You know, he was thinking about like, getting a fluffy rabbit and taking it back home. Um, but for my grandfather, he was thinking very much in terms of like, we are catching dinner here, right? That's what we are doing. We are catching dinner. And, and the reason why is because my grandfather actually grew up during the Great Depression. He grew up in a home where uh, he never really knew, are we going to have enough food on the table? Are we going to survive? And so when a rabbit trap is put out, of course, you, you, know, you go with that. You, you don't buy dinner when you can catch it and kill it and eat it yourself. Even decades later, he was living an entire life in response to, his childhood. And for all of us in this room, we all live in response to something. For some of us, it is our upbringing. For some of you in this room, you were raised in homes where you had to perform. It was very performance-driven. And if you uh, won the game, if you uh, did well in school, if you behaved, then you were loved. You were hugged. You were shown affection. You were showered with gifts. And if you didn't do those things, it did not go well for you. And now, in reaction to your upbringing, even though that was back to your you know, middle school report card, now today, you, know, you live in response to that. And you're like the crazy crazy, overly competitive person, you know, who freaks out when you lose a game of Monopoly, which didn't happen to me two weeks ago when I lost to Andy. Or, you know, it happens in your marriage, right, where you get into an argument in your, in your marriage, and, uh, you know, you and your spouse are going back and forth, and, and she's even revealed to you that you're wrong, but there's something so deeply embedded in you to win, right? You've got to win. There's no other option other than winning that you would rather win, even if you're wrong, because that's the only option, Right? That's the only option. And so even now, decades later, you're living in reaction to your upbringing. For others of you, 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 you live in response to, you know, maybe something that happened to you in your past, maybe a hurt. Um, you know, all of us, for example, have had probably somebody close to us um, violate our trust. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a, uh, a 
significant other or a spouse, and you know it's hard not to let that hurt in our past forever shape the way we interpret future relationships. So let's just say hypothetically, you know, a guy, uh, you know, in your past cheated on you. Um, it's hard when you get into another relationship not to notice the similarities and let that shape the way you, you know, treat this guy. So it's like, wait, the guy in my past drank Diet Coke, and um, you drink Diet Coke, and I know I shouldn't be thinking this, but something is going off in my head. Wait, are you going to hurt me in the exact same way that guy hurt me way back then? So, so all of us, we, we all live in response and in reaction to something. And, and what Paul is going to say tonight as he starts the second half of this letter is it's not so much that you shouldn't live in response to something. In fact, it's unavoidable to live a life of response. But that for you and I, we should live in response, not to our hurts, not to our past, not to our upbringing, not to our fears, but rather the grace, love, and mercy of God expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ that he just spent three chapters telling us all about. Now, what he's going to do tonight as he kind of introduces this concept is he's going to uh, paint broad strokes of what this is supposed to look like in your life. He's, he's almost, um, the way I kind of thought about it, you know when you go bowling, if you're really bad at bowling like I am, you still, as an adult, have to ask for the bumpers to uh, get bowled that. And um, this is just like confession time for me. And, um, and uh, you know, those are almost like boundaries of which you, you can't exit. And that's really what Paul is going to provide for you tonight. He's going to lay a foundation. He's going to give an overview. He's going to provide some boundaries uh, for what a, a life lived in response to grace looks like. And what he's going to target into are kind of three major categories or areas of our lives. We'll all uh, interact with those categories even tomorrow if we you know, stay at home with our kids or go to work, whatever it is you may do. And what he's providing is starting to help shape our thinking to think rightly about how I should live in response to what God has done. Now, the first area that Paul is going to address is how I interact with people, okay? How I interact with people. And we all interact with people, whether we like it or not, whether introverted or extroverted, we all interact with people. And what he's going to say, he's going to kind of provide a goal for each of these major categories of our lives. And he's going to say, a life lived in response with people is after the goal of unity, okay, is after the goal of unity. I want you to look at what he writes, starting in verse uh, 1. He says, he says, uh, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Uh, so verse 3 right here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we walk worthy of our calling by maintaining unity. Now, what you know and I know as we do life with people is the natural direction of every single relationship is to head towards chaos and disunity rather than peace and unity. So uh, many of you have seen this in your marriage. You marry somebody and, you know, there's about 50 million people who get married every single year with the anticipation that you are going to make me happy for the rest of my life. And yet, statistically speaking, the vast majority of people who get married uh, either aren't married anymore or wish they hadn't got married. We see this with friends, don't we? All of us, if we think about our lives, there's somebody in our past that swore their allegiance to us. We called BFF. They made 
mixtapes for us. They told us they would be our friends for the rest of our lives. And now, like, they won't even accept your friend request on Facebook. There's uh, categories of our lives like the church and our work and just kind of the organizations and clubs we belong to where you are in meetings and you have people say, I'm here, you can depend on me, I'll be your customer for the rest of my life, I promise. And then all of a sudden, a week later, you find out they went somewhere else. The ebb and flow of relationships is chaos and disunity. And what Paul is saying is that in the church, for the people of God who are this counterculture, we've talked about how we are a city within the city, what's manifested is not chaos and frustration and criticism, but rather the peace and unity of God. In fact, what he says, if you look at that next part, starting in verse 4, he kind of gives the reason of how we can even make this happen. It's almost a reminder, a flashback to what he said in, in the first three chapters. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this is a very logical explanation because uh, here's the deal, is that outside of the church, and outside of the church, uh, for those who don't follow Jesus Christ, uh, we are functioning as Lord and Savior, as King of our own lives. And it's, and it's not uh, too much of a surprise that there's so much chaos when everybody is a king trying to establish their kingdom, right? I mean, it's kind of like Braveheart up in here, warring clans, attacking one another, establishing my kingdom. But because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one person in charge, God, and we in the church come underneath his reign and rule, he's the king, I am the subject, you are as well if you're a follower of Jesus, we can be unified under him, and we should be. And not only that, but that you and I, we should fight for unity both in the church and outside of the church as well. As we think about our relationships, we should fight for unity. In fact, I heard somebody put it this way, that we're almost like a watchman, uh, a watchwoman uh, on guard over our relationships for unity, looking for it, fighting for it, on watch for it. Now, this may surprise you, um, but I actually know what that's like. Um, this is kind of a, you know, I, I won't go through the whole story with this, but um, when I first started college, I actually went to the, uh, the Naval Academy, so I was enlisted in the Navy. And um, not only do I know what it's like to be in the military, on watch or on guard, um, I know what it's like to be on watch or on guard during the worst possible times. Because when my commanding officers found out that I was leaving, um, not only did they give me consistent shifts of watch, uh, but they also gave it during the 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. shift every single morning until I left. And it was brutal. And um, I remember the one thing, the one thing I tried not to do was fall asleep. I knew it would not go well for me. And so I had to watch this room. It was, it was about this size, actually. And um, it was kind of facing outward. And it was so cold during that year um, that I would actually raise the windows and I would open the doors um, because I was so far, uh, I was so afraid of falling asleep. I was like, well, as, as long as I'm more concerned with frostbite than falling asleep, then uh, I'll stay awake and things will go well for me. And um, this doesn't even have anything to do with the point I'm making this, but I just have always wanted to tell this story because this really happened to me. Um, <laughs> this one time, you know, I've propped open the, the doors because um, I'm trying not to fall asleep and it's freezing cold in there. And uh, this really happened to me. Um, I mean, all my stories really happened to me, but this one is kind of hard to believe. This skunk walks in from the outside and just stops and he gets up on his hind legs and he just stares at me. And I'm on, like on the back of the room and he's in the front of the room. He's at the very front of the doors and he just looks at me and I'm looking at him. And then he gets on his little four legs and he takes a lap all the way around the room and then he just leaves. 
And um, I don't know what it means. I don't know if I'm, you know, maybe I hallucinated. Um, it just happened. And I thought, I've always wanted to share that story. But um, here is the point that's kind of relevant to what we're talking about tonight, is that, um, is that just like as I was on watch, and the most natural thing for me to do was to fall asleep, and so I had to fight to stay awake. In our relationships, we are on guard over those relationships, and then the most natural thing to happen in those relationships is chaos and disunity. And so we fight for unity with the relationships God has entrusted us with. Now, what does this look like? Well, you know, a big part of my job is just working with people and, um, you know, a lot of times even kind of mediating conflict between people. And so let me just kind of give you through my own experience, and I think also what you see commanded in the scriptures, just maybe four simple ways that, um, that, that you can, can do this. Let me just be super practical with you. Um, the first is I would challenge you, if you're going to keep watch over your relationship and have unity, that you need to decide to talk to someone and not about someone. Okay, talk to someone and not about someone. Now, we all know that in the midst of conflict, the most natural thing for us to do is to talk about someone and not to someone. Am I right about this? So um, somebody upsets you and you talk to other people about it. Isn't she so inconsiderate? You talk to yourself about it. Ugh, she makes me so mad when she's so inconsiderate. You talk to face, uh, Facebook and Twitter about it. Uh, don't you hate it when people are inconsiderate? Hashtag bummed out. And what Paul is talking about, what he's challenging you to as you uh, work for unity in your relationship is you've got to talk to people and not just about people. In fact, what you've got to recognize, and I, I've tried to really embody this in my own life, is that if you haven't talked to someone, you really haven't given them the opportunity to remedy whatever the conflict is. And so I've just started to do this kind of crazy countercultural thing where I'll get someone uh, face-to-face and I'll tell them how I actually feel. I, I know that's kind of crazy that you would do that, um, but you know, our generation, it is crazy because our generation has been raised that as soon as things get hard, we leave. Right? We leave and we disappear. And, and maybe for those of you who are Christians, you even spiritually justify it. I don't know how, but you do. And uh, what, what we need to do is we have to stay and we have to fight and to be honest and have hard conversations and love one another because it's when you actually start to kind of talk through your difficulties and struggles that you're actually known, you know somebody else, and an authentic relationship is developed. Right? For those of you who have siblings, for those of you who love your family, for those of you who have spouses, that is when an authentic relationship is built, not when you disappear and leave. Second, we have to assume positive intent. Now, naturally for me, I am so bad at this. And you know what I found in my life? I found that when I am searching for the worst case scenario, it's very easy for me to find the worst case scenario. Have you experienced this? Like, it's very easy when you're looking for the bad in someone to always find the bad there. And uh, I, I just think we, we cannot look at people through that lens, but instead assume positive intent. In fact, one of my mentors challenged me on this, and what he said is one of the distinguishing marks of leadership is the willingness to look for the best in other people until they give you good reason to believe otherwise. And it's been amazing, at least in my own life, maybe, again, this is just confession hour for me, um, how I, when I'm not always kind of in my mind reading the worst-case scenario in every little thing, I can't believe you said that. You know, it starts escalating even in your head. I can't believe you said that. That was so inconsiderate. You were inconsiderate. You don't even like me. I don't even like you. We don't even need to be friends anymore. I'm never going to talk to you. It's, it's amazing how irrational we can be in our own heads. And, and maybe if we just kind of not always looked for the worst case, we, we wouldn't always find it. Third, we have to be eager to forgive, okay? We have to be eager to forgive because here's the deal is that 
Sometimes it's not just a misunderstanding. Actually, the majority of the time, it's not just a misunderstanding. People are in desperate need of forgiveness, and it's hard. It's hard when you've been justifiably wronged. But here's the deal, is that I think our willingness to forgive is directly tied to our grasp of the magnitude of God, of his forgiveness and his love and his grace, of his gospel that Paul's talked about for three chapters. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And so as people who have received grace, we are meant to be gracious to those in our uh, sphere of influence and have hurt us because God has been so gracious to us. And fourth and finally, I want to challenge you um, not just to give forgiveness, but to ask for forgiveness as well, to ask for forgiveness. Now, um, I know this is kind of crazy, but for all of us, I think most of us just, most of us are easily frustrated by people. Can we just be honest about that for a minute? Like most of us, we just get frustrated by people, um, but we tend to all think that it's the other people who are frustrated, which is kind of funny because you know, somebody thinks I'm frustrating, but I think that everybody else is frustrating, but the everybody else thinks that everybody else is frustrating, and it's no wonder then that, you know, it's so hard for us to see peace and resolution. And so um, maybe, you know, maybe this is just kind of cold, hard statistics uh, that you would just kind of recognize um, that you are frustrating and that you are annoying and that you say things that are insensitive and you say things that hurt people's feelings and you, you do the very things that upset you so much and that keep you up at night. And I do too. I do too. And that's Okay. That's okay. We just have to acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. And, and uh, I guess this is where I would just practically challenge you is um, when is maybe the last time you just asked somebody for their forgiveness? When, when was the last time that maybe you, you went to somebody and said, I'm sorry, not I'm sorry um, that I did that because you did this and you make me so angry when you do this. That's not an apology. That's an insult. Okay. Do you understand the difference between those two? Um, we, don't, we don't do it. Just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I said that. It was wrong. I'm sorry that I did that. It was insensitive. I'm sorry that um, I, I'm not sure. And if it's been a long time, I mean, if we're talking like it's been years where you haven't said I'm sorry without any buts behind it, there may be an issue. Okay, there may be an issue there. And so what Paul is saying is first, as we live a life in response to God, well, God has loved us and he's uh, transformed us from pretending like we're kings to recognizing he is the king and we are unified underneath his kingdom and we pursue the goal of unity in our relationships. Now, the second kind of major area he's going to give us a boundary for, a goal for, is our time, okay? The way we use our time. And in our time, um, what Paul is going to challenge us to is, is ask this kind of difficult question. It may seem a little bit bizarre on the front end. Um, am I growing a ministry? I think that's the question you need to ask yourself. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, am I growing a ministry uh, with my time? And, and let me kind of show you how, how we get there, um, starting in verse 8. Um, therefore it says, and when it says, therefore it says, uh, Paul's quoting Psalm 68 here. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Now, l- let me just tackle this before, because this could be a little bit confusing. All that Paul's saying here, he's kind of summing up the story of the gospel. Uh, gos- the gospel. So um, Jesus steps 
out of heaven and descends into history. He descends onto the earth. That's what Paul's saying here. So he's not talking about kind of any weird Jesus going to hell stuff. He's just talking about Jesus descends onto the earth. On the earth, he lives a perfect, sinless, righteous life. He dies on the cross. So he lives sinless so that we could be holy. He dies on a cross so that we could be forgiven. He resurrects from the grave so that we can be victorious. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus ascends. He goes up. He goes back to where he came from. He reigns and rules from heaven. But it says, look at verse 8, when he did this, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So when he went up, he gave back gifts. And you say, well, what type of gifts? Well, Paul explains this, starting in verse 11. He talks about how uh, he gives the church the gift of leaders. Look at verse 11. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the, te- the, the shepherds and teachers. And um, I'll just tackle this real quick because this isn't going to be our focus. But what, what, I, what I think is just important for you to recognize from that is that any church that's ever existed has experienced the goodness of these gifts. And you need to understand this. I mean, I mean, it's kind of weird for me. I feel like I'm almost like humble bragging here, kind of saying this from stage. But you need to understand that leaders are a gift to the church. And as soon as the church, as long as the church has ever existed, God has given it apostles to start it. God has given it uh, prophets to, to kind of lay the, the truth and the foundation of who God is for it. God has given evangelists for uh, them to bring in uh, non-Christians, have them be Christians in it. And, and God's given it pastor teachers, shepherd teachers to shepherd the church and fight for the church and protect the church and love you and care for you and watch over you as well. And so God gives, when Jesus ascends, the gift of leaders. But not only that, here's here's what I think is most important for you to take away. God gives the church the gift of you. He He gives the church the gift of you. He says, all of this, look at verse 12. The purpose of all of this is to equip the saints. And remember, anytime Paul talks about saints in the book of Ephesians, he's talking about you if you're a follower of Jesus. To equip the saints, to equip you for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so here's how this practically manifests itself then. Um, You know, a lot of times when you think about somebody who's in ministry, you think about somebody like me. Right? I have a call into ministry. I work for a church. I speak from stage. You're probably not even sure, what do you do during the rest of the week? What sort of other kind of weird religious, spiritual things are you doing during your nine to five? And that's not what this text is saying. You know who's in the ministry? You know who's called into the ministry? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are. You are. And my job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. The day you became a Christian, you were called into full-time Christian ministry. Now, I don't know if that's a new concept. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, But I feel like kind of the best way for me to help you understand this is one to tell you that the Summit Church is what it is. I mean, kind of the story we've written, the success we've experienced um, is all, I think, rooted on the fact that we have people that have grabbed a hold of this vision, that we have people in our church, even in this room right now, who have seen themselves called into full-time ministry, even though they don't get their pay from the church. And let me give you just kind of some categories that I've seen this in the life of our church. And maybe this will even kind of help, for those of you who are trying to wrap your mind around this, some categories of what this uh, may look like for you as well. Um, I've seen this with jobs, okay? I've seen this with jobs. Um, I think of Drew. I think of Drew starting a painting business. He's an entrepreneur in downtown trying to hire guys who who struggle to find work elsewhere. I think of Chad Forty. Um, I don't know if Chad's here, but um, I think, like, he's a guy from the very beginning. I think to myself, like, that guy loves his coworkers. 
He's a teacher. It's probably really hard to be a teacher in my work. My wife works in a, in a school, and it's very, very hard. And I just think, like, that's a guy that loves his coworkers. You probably, you know, I don't know where you are, but, you know, um, you may have even brought coworkers with you, and they're like, yeah, like, Chad really does um, love us. I think of uh, uh, Shudi, who, who leads one of our city groups, who uh, works for John Deere, oversees two states, 32 employees, and, um, like, really, instead of kind of being the boss, who's a tyrant, squeezing out every last ounce of productivity from these people, is like, I'm going to love you and shepherd you as God would have me do. Um, I think of hobbies. Um, I, I think about how people have taken the things that they're kind of naturally good at and leveraged those to make a difference and, and have a ministry. Um, I think of my buddy Travis. Uh, I, I saw he was greeting on the way in. And um, I think about Travis. Like, Travis does CrossFit more in a day than I typically do in a week. And... Um, and it's because he really loves it. Like, he really loves um, being in the gym multiple times throughout the entire day. Whenever there's free time, he'll go to other gyms in the city. I mean, he just loves the CrossFit. And I don't know if there's anybody from our CrossFit gym there. Like, like that guy, you know he loves you. You may not even agree with what he believes, but you know he loves you. He loves you, and he cares for you, and he's there for you whenever you need it. In fact, um, he even loves you um, in the craziest of scenarios. This is a story that's kind of become part of Summit Folklore, um, but, um, I guess like two weeks ago, Travis is biking home from our CrossFit gym. It's at Blake right by Coors Field. He's heading home. He's crossing over Park Avenue West and he gets hit by a car that's going like 35 miles an hour, gets flipped off his bike, goes into the windshield and thrown off the car. And he gets up and as he's pulling glass out of his arm, he looks at the girl who hit her. who's like, oh my gosh, I think I just killed you. And it's like, hey, by the way, like, I go to this great church um, right down the street, and I would love to have you come and join us sometime. I'm like, okay, that's a guy who's looking for ministry opportunities in the ebb and flow of his everyday life. You're welcome, Travis. You are a tough man, tougher than me. I would have been crying and calling for mommy. Um, <laughs> I think about passions. I think about passions, how there's things that for many people in our church, um, they're just passionate about them in ways other people aren't, or ways other people aren't yet. I think about um, maybe a month ago, some of you know Mark and Angie Henderson. I was having a conversation with them after the service. I was like, hey, what are you guys doing this week? What are you, what are you going to do? And I mean, they weren't boasting about this whatsoever, but they were just, I mean, I know they have a huge passion for the marginalized in this city. And um, they just said, well, we're going to go to the Little Caesars um, right by Safeway. We're going to pick up some $5 hot and ready's, and we're just going to go to where the homeless people hang out a few blocks away from this church, and we're just going to give them out and talk to those guys. I'm like, that's great. Like, that's somebody using their passion and not saying, well, you know what? Like, the church has to have a ministry for this. If it's going to be... No, like, you are the ministers, and you go, and you see needs, and you have means, and, and... okay, like, let's go have a conversation with the homeless people before we demand that the church has a homeless ministry. I love that. I love that. I think about um, people leveraging their life stages, just kind of whatever life stage it is that God uh, may have you in. I think about, for those of you who are parents, like the Summit Church has really great parents. And I think about how, you know, most people kind of look at their children as nothing more substantial than an intrusion on the life they always wanted to live. Right? I mean, you see this where, like, you know, people, you know, you've taken your kids to a restaurant and everybody's rolling their eyes and somebody's scoffing and somebody who's older with teenagers is like, well, let me tell you, it only gets worse. Like, thanks for the encouragement, buddy, like, as my kid is melting down in here. And, and what I love about some of the parents is like, okay, here's the deal. Like, this is not a burden. This is not 
awful. This is not an intrusion. I do not miss having as much free time or sleeping. Like you're, you're not a burden on my life. You are my responsibility, and I'm going to shepherd you. God has called me to the ministry of motherhood. God has called me to the ministry of fatherhood, and I'm going to use this life stage the way that God would have me use this life stage. I think for those of you who may not have kids, I think about how our church has single girls, too many single girls really even to, to mention. Uh, with you know, If I start kind of naming names, I'll leave somebody out who's doing incredible work. And how they just kind of look at their life stage and they don't just sit around and moan about the fact that they're not married and I want to be married and life will finally be complete when I'm married. These girls get after it. And they use their free time and their flexibility to develop relationships and love people and help people get connected. And many of you in this room are here at the Summit Church, not because you like so much what I said, but because this girl reached out to you and said, hey, you want to grab lunch sometime? They're like, yeah, I would love that. And the Summit Church is built on the foundation of normal people doing normal life with gospel intentionality. My job is to equip the people to do the work of the ministry. Our job as leaders is not to do the ministry, it's to equip the ministers. And if you're in this room and a covenant member of this family, you are a minister of the Summit Church. And what I hope you see with that then is that this gives your life, whatever it is that you do, no matter how mundane, no matter how pointless it feels, purpose and meaning. I know it's hard. You know, some of you teach, and I know it's hard to feel that when your kids are melting down and cheating on tests, and you, you, know, you threaten with demerits, and they're like, well, fine, give me a demerit. I know it's hard to see that. I know it's hard for those of you who are parents. You know, some of you stay home with your kids, and you feel like, I don't have an adult conversation for weeks. I feel like I've got someone hanging on every part of my body at all times, and I just want to be alone where it's quiet. I know it's, it's difficult to see that in that moment. I know for some of you, you work jobs, and that does not feel like a career. It feels like a job. It feels worse than a job. It feels like nothing more than kind of a way to pay the bills. And you go, and your bosses feel incompetent, and your coworkers don't care, and you feel like God called me to this. And he did. He did. He's sovereign and over everything, and he has you where you are for a reason. He gave you the gifts he gave you for a reason. He gave you your passions for a reason. And rather than you growing bitter, and rather than you criticizing the other people who don't see the world exactly the same way you see the world, you are meant to leverage that ministry for God's glory in whatever sphere of influence he has sovereignly chosen to entrust you with. I would even just challenge those of you who are here tonight, you're kind of exploring Christianity and the church. I would just challenge you to say, look, uh, I have no doubt that you're successful and talented and this city attracts a lot of people like that. If you're going to thrive here and not just survive, you have to be very successful and very talented and work very, very hard. But I would warn you that it's easy to kind of look at that and think, I built this life on my own. No, the gifts God gave you We're not given so that you would make much of yourself, but to make much of the giver. And the reasons you love the things you love, the things you're good at, the things you're good at, is because there's a creator and sustainer that gave you those gifts. I would just challenge you, even from the beginning, to start asking yourself, what would it look like for me to look at my work, to look at my family, look at my hobbies, look at my interests, not as something to just make a bunch of money, not just as something to live the American dream, not just as something I have to do in order to pay the bills, not just as something I do in order to alleviate pressure and stress, but as a ministry to make much of the one who saved us, loved us, and redeemed us back to himself. And so that's the question. As we are 
thinking about our time, am I viewing it through the lens of it being a ministry? That's what, what Paul is telling us with this as well. Third, and finally, he tackles, and he kind of lays, this is kind of providing an intro for what the rest of this letter is going to be. He starts talking about our behavior, our conduct. How is it that I'm supposed to live? And um, here, here's, I'll just kind of give it away from the very beginning. The goal he's saying with this is the question that you need to ask as you're trying to make decisions about your behavior, whether it's um, what you do or don't do, what you say or don't say, what substance you do or don't put, you know, put in your body, um, who you do or don't date, who you do or don't uh, marry. For any area of your life where you're trying to decide what is the right thing, the question you need to ask yourself is not, is it legal? Is not, uh, is it permissible? Is not, can I get away with it? Is not, no, no, is, does it help me grow into maturity in following Jesus? Does it help me follow Jesus and grow up into him? And look what he writes, starting in verse 13. It says, we do all this until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God so that we may no longer be children. And this is one of the distinguishing uh, aspects of Christianity, that when Jesus talks about salvation, he's not talking so much about moral improvement as much as he is a brand new life. In fact, Jesus uses the language that when you begin to follow him, you are born again. You are like a brand new baby seeing the world through a brand new lens. And, And many of you in this church have experienced that before. Now, what Paul's challenging you to is to understand that it's only endearing for you to act like a little baby for a short period of your life. So, so for those of you who have little kids, it's only endearing for that child to act like a child for a certain period of their lives, right? It's not endearing when they're 20 for them to still be in diapers. Same way in Christianity. That God has had you be born again for the purpose of you growing up into maturity in Jesus Christ. The point of being born is to grow up, isn't it? The point of being born again is to grow up, isn't it? And what Paul is challenging you to is he's kind of laying the foundation to say, that's the question I need to ask myself as I go and do life in this city tomorrow. Not is it legal, not is it permissible, not can I get away with it, not will it make me happy, will it contribute to me growing up into Jesus? Now, we won't go into a lot more detail with that because so that's the last of the letter, but I want to point your attention just to one more line um, to help kind of start laying the foundation of how we do this. Look at verse 15. He kind of gives us a how here. Um, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, so there's that concept again, in every way to him who is the head into Christ. And so he says a fundamental way for us to grow up into Jesus as we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. And, and so we speak the truth in love to other people to, to help them grow up into maturity. And I think for us, we need uh, people to speak the truth in love to our lives as well. And, and what you know, um, if you've ever done anything uh, stupid, is, be, is, is you did not do what was stupid with the purpose of saying, you know what I can't wait to do? I can't wait to significantly mess up my life. You know, none of us kind of start that way. Instead, what do we have? We have blinders up, right? We have blinders where it's just kind of like, this will make me happy. Even though other people can see, this will not make you happy. And even though you've experienced over and over again, this does not make me happy. And so what we need is somebody from the outside to speak the truth in love. Uh, I was, th- this happened to me um, a couple weeks ago. Um, so a couple blocks this way, 
Um, you go up, uh, I guess it's 33rd here. You go a couple blocks this way, and there's a brand-new nonprofit center that just opened um, on Arapahoe and 33rd. They call it the Horse Barn. And they had this grand opening two weeks ago, and uh, Andy and I said, okay, these guys are our neighbors. We're going to go check it out. And it was awesome. I mean, this space is incredible. It's well done. It's beautiful. Everybody was kind of out having, uh, you know, talking about what they do. They do stuff all over the world. It was fascinating. Uh, but the best part was they had dinner. Uh, free dinner, and it was from Qdoba, and I love Qdoba. Their chips and their queso are fantastic. And so um, we go and we get dinner, and uh, we go. It's kind of like a buffet line, and uh, you know I'm eating and Andy's eating, but Andy's like always way more social at things like this than I am. And so he gets in a conversation with a complete stranger. Okay, that's fine. I'll go wander off alone. And so I'm like eating my dinner and everything. And um, you know I just kind of am looking. At, I, you know I, I kind of went from like exhibit to exhibit to exhibit. And I just get into conversations. Tell me what you do. Tell me what's going on. Tell me you know. How did you get into this? You know, five or six of these. And when I get to the seventh, this guy, before I can ever say anything, looks me straight in the eye. He's like, dude, you have a huge chunk of cheese in your beard. <laughs> you know, like, and all I could think to myself was like, that's been in there through six previous conversations. <laughs> like, nobody had the guts to say, like, dude, you are storing some queso for later in your huge lumberjack beard. And that would have been much appreciated. And so here's the deal. As we go and do life, just as it is hard for me to feel cheese in my beard, it is very difficult. This is so lame. It's very difficult for us to see in our own lives when we're making really stupid decisions. Like we got to have somebody come from the outside and be like, you got queso in your beard. You're about to do something stupid. You shouldn't date that guy. That's bad for you. You've seen what direction this goes. You running away from community does not fix this. You've seen how this goes over and over and over again. And what we need, what we need, because we all have blinders on, is people that we've given permission to to come into our lives so that we grow up into maturity. And we give them the permission to speak the truth in love. In fact, I've so seen my propensity to do stupid things when I'm functioning in isolation um, that I've actually gone to some guys. I mean, our, our pastoral team is like this, where they, I've literally had the conversation, I want you to know you have permission to speak into my life. I've actually said, I want you to know you have permission. If I'm doing something stupid, if I say something insensitive, if I hurt somebody's feelings and I'm just completely obtuse and don't recognize it, I want you to come and speak truth in my life. And we all need this. We all have blinders on. We need somebody that when we are about to walk down a very bad and dangerous path to come and hold us and grab us back and say, no, you're not going to go down there. We speak the truth and love to others. We speak the truth and love to ourselves. We receive that feedback. I mean, I would just even challenge you to say, maybe who is it that you need to speak the truth and love with this week? Who is it that maybe you need to open yourself up and initiate a conversation and say, uh, maybe you don't feel comfortable with me speaking the truth and love in your life, but let's just start with you talking about my life. It is a blessing to have somebody who will come alongside you and fights to enable you to grow up as you were meant to grow up. And so that's the boundary that Paul has laid up. He's going to get into a lot of specifics in the coming weeks. He's going to talk about romance, and he's going to talk about uh, substances, and he's going to talk about kids, and he's going to talk about marriage. But what he wanted to just do tonight is lay a foundation to say that as I am thinking about how it is I handle my relationships. The goal is unity as I'm living in response to Christ. 
as I'm thinking about how I use my time, the goal is ministry as I'm living in response to Christ. As I'm thinking about just my behavior and my conduct, the goal is maturity in response to Christ. And we want to live in a whole, a whole life in response to the grace and love God has shown us through the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love uh, that not only saves us but changes us. And I pray that we would be men and women humble enough to recognize you are the king and we are not. And so we will live unified, lo- unified lives underneath your authority. I pray that we would be men and women that understand we are not the chief end for which this universe exists. And so rather than having careers that make much of us and, and, and give much to us, that we would live lives ministering to demonstrate your love to this great city. God, I pray that we would be men and women that recognize that we are limited in our knowledge and we deeply need somebody from the outside to come and speak in and say there are some major issues and you are walking down a dangerous path. We need that. And so God, my prayer is that as we sing and celebrate in response that we would do so in humble recognition that our lives are meant to be a total response to you. And God, I just pray that would be the lens through which these men and women in this room would even just understand their life tomorrow morning as they start another week, that everything is in response to you. And we love you. We thank you for this time. We just ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.